Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up at your door in as little as two days. Then, when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out for more new-to-you styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours and spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothing for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off of their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Well, it has finally happened. We have joked for years that one day we're going to be in the studio and someone is going to start their story and boom, it's one we've already covered or that someone else is working on. Well, today's that day. (gasps) While writing my story about Russell Obrimsky, there was a mention of a man who had also been paroled early and should not have been. I knew I had to cover his story. Then when looking for a photo for the case after it was written, murder in the rain popped up. It turns out Emily already covered this story (laughs) in her episode Wicked Part of Me from November of 2020. So after some swearing and crying, I decided I should still share this story. Absolutely. Emily did a great job, of course, obviously. But that episode has since been moved to our Patreon and our YouTube, as have many of our older episodes. And his story was part of several in that episode, so she wasn't able to share all of the details. So since I've been on a kick of sharing these stories of parolees gone wrong, we are revisiting and diving deeper into the case of Cal Brown. Oh, yeah. Do you remember him? I do. And I didn't go that deep at all with him. Thank God. I literally got to the It had never crossed my mind because it just normally it clicks like I've pulled up things and I'm like, this sounds familiar. And for some reason, it just did not click in my brain. And then I looked for that photo and I was like, and (gasps) I don't think I added his name in our episode guide. I don't think you would check it anyway. But but usually I would put everyone's name. Yeah, no, it, it did not come up and I didn't think to look. And so here we are. But I'm excited to share all this. Holly Washa was just 18 years old when she left her family's farm in Ogallala, Nebraska. 
When looking at the town on Google Maps, it took me 10 clicks of zooming out before I saw a city name I recognized. Denver is 212 miles to the southwest. Lincoln, Nebraska is 275 miles to the east. It is in the literal middle of nowhere. That was why Holly was so excited to be headed to the International Air Academy in Vancouver, Washington in February 1988. She had dreams of seeing the world and knew that the best way to do so would be to become a flight attendant. After graduating from her three months long training, Holly then moved to the hub of Seattle. She had met a young man who was also at the academy and they moved in together. Seeking a job with an airline, she was bummed when she didn't get hired right out of the gate. Having been a hardworking farm girl, her grit showed in her work in Washington. She got a job at the Wyndham Garden Hotel near the Seattle-Tacoma Airport as a room-cleaning person before becoming a cable TV dispatcher. When that became her full-time job, she moved the cleaning work to the weekend. Amazingly, working seven days a week didn't keep Holly from having a social life. She enjoyed the lush outdoors the area had to offer, especially compared to that of her Nebraska home. She loved to fish, go on picnics, play softball— Even the atmosphere was better for her, relieving the pain she had all her life from an asthmatic condition that had been exacerbated by the dry Midwest air. Holly went home to visit her family in August of 1989. Her father, John, felt she seemed happy with her big city life. Although she hadn't been fond of how people at work were kind to her, but in a kind of patronizing way. She was treated like she was just the sweet young farm girl who was living in a city for the first time. There was no way that she could take care of herself. She was happy to prove them wrong. On May 23, 1991, Holly decided to turn in her uniform and quit her part-time cleaning job. Driving her 1985 Blue Oldsmobile, she was leaving the hotel's parking lot when a man walking by her pointed to her tires. Thinking something was wrong, she stopped the car. As she opened the door to inspect the issue, the man forced his way into the car and held a Leatherman knife to her face. Grabbing Holly by the hair, the man demanded that she drive or die. She started driving, and he got a hold of her purse. Going through it, he found only change before stumbling upon her checkbook. Under the threat of the knife, she wrote a checkout in the amount of her savings, $350. Going to a bank's drive through in Federal Way, the check was then cashed. The man then had her drive to the Seattle waterfront. Pulling over, he tied Holly's hands behind her back with the strap of her purse and made her move over to the passenger side. Not wanting alarms to be raised too early, he asked Holly about her life. What did a typical day look like? Did she have roommates? Getting the answers he was hoping for, like perhaps she wouldn't be noticed as missing for a couple of hours, he decided to escalate the situation. Stopping at a gun shop, he left her tied up in the car as he purchased a set of handcuffs. The man was a visitor in town, so he already had a room at the Shadow Motel. Taking Holly inside, he first had her get undressed. Laying her on the bed, he used his business neckties and her purse strap to tie her to the bed. Picking her shirt up off the ground, he cut a part of it off and shoved it in her mouth as a makeshift gag. Later, he told her to put her clothes back on, I'm assuming in the cut-up shirt and all, because he was hungry. Getting back in the car, they drove to a Burger King. As she sat in the drive-thru, she knew she couldn't risk asking for help because he was holding the knife to her. Back at the room, she was once again forced to get nude and lay on the bed, this time on her stomach. After giving the order to be quiet, the man claimed Holly began to, on her own, give him oral sex. Which I could see, and Emily, I don't know if you've thought of this, I know I've definitely played out scenarios in my head where maybe choosing to do something could get me out of a situation or... 
Yeah. I, I could even plenty, hurt them or something. Plenty of victims act agreeable mm-hmm. or they adapt to what they think he's looking for so that they can be safe. Yeah. Uh, or And find an opportunity to escape. Exactly. Maybe she thought that doing that on her own would allow for her to escape. Instead, he took that to mean that she was game for sex. The man then raped Holly for two hours. As he did, he couldn't help but notice how her eyes were always on the door, and he worried she was thinking of escaping. Her feeling confident enough to even consider getting away had the man realizing he needed to do more to show he was in control. He needed to, quote, make her a little more scared of me, basically. So he once again tied her to the bed, this time face up, her hands behind her back, her legs forced in a spread eagle position, and she was gagged. Possibly using that bag strap, he then whipped her approximately 12 times. After those hours of raping, the man was hungry again, so Holly was forced to get dressed and get back in the car. This time, they were making their way to a pizza place in Federal Way. After grabbing a pie, they went back to the hotel, and back she was to being naked and tied on the bed, now face down. The rapes continued. Around 11 p.m., the man got on the phone, Holly could only hear one side of the conversation, but it seemed that the man was confirming a weekend getaway he had planned with a woman in California. Hanging up, the man then crawled into bed with Holly, leaving her tied up and gagged, arms behind her back, legs spread. He fell asleep. Morning finally arrived. Getting dressed once more, Holly was forced to drive the man to her home. He had big plans. He was going to rummage through the house looking for her roommate's checkbooks, Because, yes, what early 20-something isn't rich with savings? He was lucky to find a couple of checks, which he then wrote out for $500. He wasn't so lucky when he went to the bank and tried to cash them. I don't know if the banker was that close to their clients or the guy just gave off red flags, but they said that they would not be able to cash them until they had compared the signatures on the checks to the one on the file. This was very upsetting to the man, and he left without any money. Leaving the bank, Holly was desperate to not have to return to that hell of a motel room, so she started driving erratically, maybe in hopes of being pulled over, maybe in hopes of crashing. This, too, made the man quite upset. Perhaps due to a threat of being hurt, Molly eventually made it back to the motel safely. But now, the man was mad. Obviously, the entire concept and content of the show comes with a discretionary warning, but this next bit is really rough, so no kids or sensitive listeners. Nothing wrong with being too empathetic, but, you know, step away. At first, it was the same cycle. Undressed, lay down, tied up, gagged, handcuffed. His anger had him escalating things, though. Now the gag was a washcloth. He raped and sodomized Holly with a bottle of aftershave. He then shaved her pubic hair before grabbing the hairdryer and holding it close to her freshly shaven pubis. He moved the hairdryer to her breasts and stomach as well, blasting the hot air on her as long as he wanted. He then took an extension cord and cut off the end. Holding the live wires to Holly's body, he shocked her multiple times. He would later say he was aware that these acts were torturous. The electric shocks appeared to be especially painful. That same day, around 9 p.m., it was time for the man to leave Seattle to go meet his lady in Palm Springs. Getting back to the car, Holly wouldn't be allowed up front anymore. Instead, the man made her climb into the trunk while handcuffed. He had planned on leaving the car at the Doug Fox Travel Agency parking lot, but realizing how busy the area was with travelers and shuttles, he worried that as soon as he walked away, Holly would be able to call out for help or bang on the trunk to get attention. So in a split-second decision, he opened the trunk, 
and with what he called three swipes, he pulled her head back and deeply cut her throat. He then stabbed her in the stomach and chest several times. Using that same purse strap, he tied it around her throat. It was such a tight knot, the strap itself was lodged deep in the wound in her neck. The man had planned to just leave the car at the travel agency, hoping it would take a few days to be discovered. But when Holly's blood started to come out from underneath the car, he panicked. Leaving that lot, he decided to go to Schmudschke's restaurant at the airport. There was still blood coming out of the car, but he had a plane to catch and hoped that the rain would just wash the blood away. Holly's body remained in the trunk and the man was off to California. While on the plane, he met a couple from Seattle. They all hit it off so much, I'm not sure in what capacity, as in the guys were all chummy or the couple was like those memes, hey, we saw you across the bar and we like your vibe, maybe a hookup situation. Whatever it was, he actually exchanged numbers with the man. They had no idea what he had just done to Holly or what he would eventually do to others. The man arrived in Palm Springs and met up with Susan Schnell. For how that meetup came to be, we have to go back a few days. On May 18th, the man was staying at the Hyatt in La Jolla, California for work. While enjoying a drink in the lounge, the charismatic man engaged in a conversation with Jan Gray, a woman from Seattle. After chatting about his work as an architect and his vacations, the two got to talking about dating. The man said that he had been struggling to meet decent ladies, and that's when Jan mentioned her friend Brianna, who lived in Seattle and had the same issue. She just could not find a good man. Desperate to play matchmaker, the man finally agreed and Jan called Brianna, setting up for the two of them to meet and go out. Having an open schedule, the man flew to Seattle on the 20th. Making a stop in Ontario, California, a woman boarded the plane and sat next to him. Her name was Susan Schnell, and she was headed to Lewiston, Idaho. I have been to Lewiston, Idaho, and as my grampy would say, I spent a week there one night. In my case, it was more, I spent a month there one week. And don't get me wrong, it is a beautiful area. I don't know if either of you have been to Lewiston or Clarkston, sister cities. But there's just not a lot to do. But it's beautiful. I'm I'm sorry I said it like that. (laughs) I have not. As they chatted, the man decided that this time he would, in a newly developed Australian accent, be a home designer. Hitting it off and deciding that they would like to see each other again, they exchanged information including phone numbers and the name of the hotel in Lewiston where Susan would be staying. The two parted ways once they landed in Seattle. Susan continued towards the Lewiston area. The man had to get going anyway as he was set to meet up with his blind date Brianna to have drinks in the lobby of the Seattle-Tacoma Red Lion Inn. Brianna showed up at the date, but they didn't have the same magic as he and Susan did. In fact, Brianna made it clear she was not physically attracted to the 5'9", 230-pound man, so they wouldn't be seeing each other again. She would later say that he was nice and intelligent, but he had some controlling behaviors that were red flags. I have a personal goal now of being positive and not judging people's appearance because that's kind of ingrained in me. Emily, I don't know if you have this happen. Sometimes you read these stories about these charmer guys and... Are shocked. That would be a word. (laughs) And I don't mean that in any disrespect, but if you hear about someone that's like picking up blind dates left and right from strangers. I actually don't, only because I work in corporate America and know all sorts of salespeople. And they are very charming and they come in all different shapes and sizes. That's true. 
Yeah, it's not about the height. Or I, I'm just saying seeing pictures, it's not. He really could look like a third Bob from The Office, you know, <laughs> like that's the kind of vibe. you so get. It's surprising. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes. So it's it's nothing. Hey, I'm basically that height and weight. I'm gorgeous. It's nothing to do with that. <laughs> it's just surprising. The following night, around 9, the man called his plane lady Susan in Idaho. She was going to be in California the following day, so she wouldn't be able to go to Seattle to meet up with him as he had invited her to do. But she did have a good compromise. She had a flight that was actually laying over in Seattle before going south, so they could meet up at the airport for a drink. Now, these were pre-9-11 days when people could come and go through the airport with ease, so that was the plan. Leaving his bags at the Shadow Motel, the man informed the employee that he was going to the airport and would be returning. He met up with Susan, and they talked about how much fun they could have if they spent the Memorial Day weekend holiday together. They made plans to meet up should the man find himself in the Palm Springs area and finish their drinks. Completing her flight and getting home to Ontario, Susan received a call. It was the man, and he was anxious to make more solid plans with her as he had decided that he would be going down to see her. They talked it out, and they were excited to have more time with each other. The next morning, he kidnapped Holly. It was Susan whom Holly had overheard the man speaking with on the phone about their upcoming weekend. The man left Holly's body in the trunk and went to catch his plane to California. Coming off a bit anxious, the man spent who knows how much money to use the plane phone to contact Susan to once again confirm she would be meeting him at the hotel they had agreed on in the Ontario area. His flight landed, and after treating himself to a couple of drinks in the hotel's lobby, he went to bed. The next day, around noon, Susan met up with him. Riding together in her burgundy 1981 Corvette sports car, they drove the 75 miles east to Palm Springs, where they got rooms at the Ramada Inn. Well, they had planned on getting rooms. Upon check-in, there had been some sort of mix-up, and because they were so busy for the holiday, there was only one room available. I, of course, do have the feeling that the man perhaps called ahead of time and maybe changed the reservation. That would be my guess, but I'm cynical. It's funny because when I covered this case, I didn't really think about that, I think, because I was doing the script and Mm -hmm. trying to get so much done. But now as I sit here and reflect on it, I absolutely think he probably changed the reservation. Probably on the airplane yeah, maybe. He probably confirmed with her, okay, Ramada Inn, right? Well, at, I, at Palm I kept Springs. wondering, like, did she book the rooms or did he? And I imagine he did. Mm-hmm. So. And I bet he called right as soon as he got confirmation from her on the airplane. He called and said, I need to cancel that second room. Mm-hmm. Feeling safe enough, Susan agreed to stay in the single room with a single bed. They did not have sex. They just slept together. As I was writing this, I couldn't help but think of that gal that had reached out to us after the Matthew Choi episode saying how she had gone on the date with the guy who was eventually arrested for the murder, how terrible she felt. And this guy had killed a young woman, a teenager, just hours before sharing a bed with this woman. And it also makes me wonder how many of us have done so, you know, who who hasn't been with a guy that maybe hours earlier was did something the asshole at the bar or was grabbing someone without permission i think there are so many men that don't realize that they are that memory for somebody and that they've done those kind of things and it's i think a lot of us have probably crossed paths in this way you know well we would think that because we're man haters (laughs) that's right (laughs) men at least our reviews say we are (laughs) and reviews are always right 
Very accurate. <laughs> I don't know. The more we cover these cases, the more I think I'm going to stay single. <laughs> yeah, for your own safety. After an uneventful first night, the vacation continued the following day. They drove through town, showing off her Corvette, enjoying the sights and architecture. Eventually, they went on a real dinner date and returned to the hotel around midnight. Getting into their one bedroom, they soon started to make out. Hands became involved. The man performed oral sex on Susan, and when he was done, he offered to give her a back rub. What could be better than getting oral sex in a back rub? So, of course, she took him up on the offer. Not knowing she was appearing just as Holly had, Susan laid face down on the bed, assumingly topless. The man straddled her back. As he started to rub her body, he suddenly grabbed her arms and jerked them back. Causing her to holler out in pain, the man told Susan not to scream. The shock of the entire situation was too much, and Susan did scream. Out again came the Leatherman knife, and the man slit Susan's throat. Thankfully, it hadn't gone very deep, and she was able to continue screaming. The man then grabbed the handcuffs. It's unclear if they were a new pair or the same ones that he had purchased and used on Holly, and he put them on Susan's wrists. As he did so, he held the knife to her. He then changed her position and tied her to the bed with her pantyhose. He promised he only wanted her money, but then he shaved her pubic hair and raped her both vaginally and orally. Remembering the money, he found her checkbook and forced her to write one out to him in the amount of $4,000. Between her bleeding and shaking, it took her three attempts to write a check that he felt wouldn't be a red flag at the bank. With a slit throat, Susan was bleeding profusely, so much so that, strangely, the man grew concerned. He thought maybe it would help if he moved her arms, so he tied them above her head. He left her ankles handcuffed. He tried to use a sock as a gag, but she was coughing up too much blood. In a panic, he actually left the room to go get medical supplies. While the man was gone, Susan found a way to get to the phone. Somehow able to dial the front desk, she called for help and the police were soon at the scene. From there, she was taken to the hospital. Though her throat was slit, she was actually okay. Immediately questioned by police, Susan described the man telling them everything she could remember. As police swarmed the area surrounding the hotel, one officer was patrolling the parking lot when he saw a man that not only matched the description of the attacker, but he was standing near Susan's Corvette. The officer pulled out his gun and told the man to raise his hands. Asking the man his name, he said Cal. The officer knew Cal was most likely still in possession of the knife he had used on Susan, so he asked where it was. Cal said, in my right pocket. Approaching, the officer then asked for his last name, Brown. The man's name was Cal Brown. Now that they had a man and his name, he was arrested for the attempted murder of Susan and was interviewed. Over a two-day period on the 27th and 28th, Cal was interviewed three times by a team of detectives, Al Franz and Mark Harvey. The first two interviews were at the request of the officers. In the initial interview, after his Miranda rights were read and record was pressed on the audio and video devices that Cal was not aware of, they started talking. Cal started by giving details about the attack on Susan, admitting everything. That information and confession must have been a relief to the officers. They weren't going to have to do much to get this guy put away for what he did to Susan. Then, to their surprise, Cal had more to say. He shocked the officers by telling them about Holly. He gave information about the assault, rapes, kidnapping, and eventual murder, even directing them to where they could find the parked car and her body in the trunk. 
Without hesitating, the Palm Springs Police Department reached out to King County in Seattle with all of the information Cal had provided. Arriving at the parking lot, the officers found Holly's Oldsmobile in Space 266. Not only was Holly discovered as Cal said she would be, but he was found to be in possession of her keys. Did I catch that they didn't have to press him at all? He just started talking? Basically. They would not have known about Holly until either someone saw something in the parking lot or a search led to it. They would have had no idea. Hmm. They At that point, it was so close. I don't even know that a full investigation into Holly being missing had happened. I don't know that a report had even been filed. It was that close yeah, together. It was, it was just like the next day, day, two days. Yeah, it was yeah. A day. Having well, knowing the end of this case, does he seem like someone that would want to claim that and like have that as like part of his count? Oh, I and Emily, you'll know because you read. I took it more as kind of like when the serial killer gets caught. Like, oh, okay. I think he saw it was and going down anyway. It all out. Honestly, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah think, You're arrested for slitting mm-hmm. a woman's throat. But I throat. do think You're... part of that is he wants to take ownership of yeah. it in a in a way that he thinks he's... and controlling. So he's controlling when they find her. I think he's also a little bit proud of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sure he is. For the last few years, there's been an uptick in promoting self-care, and for good reason. It's so important for people to take care of themselves so that they are at their healthiest before they take care of others. This could be in the form of taking a walk, getting a pedicure, or making quiet time to read a book. For me, it's skincare. As I get older, the more I invest in my skincare routine. If only I could convince 16-year-old Emily to stay away from the tanning booth, but I can make up for how I treated my skin back then because I found protocol. I've been using Protocol for several weeks and I'm loving it. What's their secret? They use a special form of retinol that was previously uncaptured by science. It's made from the same ingredient that gives bell peppers and carrots their color and is estimated to be 20 times more powerful than regular retinol. 92% of users see results in 14 days. Whether you're looking for a new serum or hydration cream or need an entire skincare system, Protocol has you covered, and it's risk-free because they offer a money-back guarantee. What's better than that? Well, Murder in the Rain listeners get 25% off with a discount code. Go to protocol-lab.com and use code MURDERINTHERAIN25 to claim your discount now. That's P-R-O-T-O-C-O-L-L-A-B com and use code murder in the rain 25 with no spaces facing the charges of attempted murder in the first degree aggravated mayhem torture robbery in the first degree and false imprisonment for his assault on susan and knowing there wasn't much of a defense argument to be made cal brown pleaded guilty california gave him a life sentence This hadn't been the first time a state on the West Coast had been aware of Cal's dangerous tendencies. All the way back in 1977, he was arrested and convicted for theft, writing bad checks, and assaulting a woman at a shopping center in California. The details are limited, but during the attack, he held a knife to the woman. I was unable to find if he robbed, raped, or kidnapped her, or how long he spent behind bars for doing whatever it was he did. At the most, he was away for only about four years because in 1984, he was in the Corvallis area of Oregon being convicted of theft 
which he committed back in 1982. Check fraud might be one of the worst side crimes to do along <laughs> with assault and murder. In in that in that you have to go into a bank to cash the check and yeah. then take video or I mean it, it'd be as dumb as shoplifting. Yeah. As a murderer. Oh, you're saying it's dumb to add. I thought you were saying it's just a dumb crime in general. You're saying it's a dumb crime to add to something else you're doing because there are so many gears in place that you're going to be seen. Yeah. yeah. You have to you have to face to face with someone to like yeah. get the scam done. Very stupid. Also stupid to have two checks in the same amount yeah. to try to fraud out. That was from the same person. Uh, mm. Different people, but oh. same address. Ooh, yeah. yeah. On September 30th, Cal was arrested by an officer who spotted him running down the street while a woman in a doorway behind him was screaming for help. Cal and the woman had been introduced by a mutual acquaintance, the woman's babysitter. Not for her. She was 24. It was for her two young kids. It's possible Cal encountered the presumably young sitter as he was attending Oregon State University as a freshman. It was around 9.30 p.m. when Cal knocked on the woman's door. He claimed to have been out walking when he sprained his ankle and was now needing assistance. The woman wasn't quick to welcome him inside. He had a hat and backpack on. It was late. Her kids were sleeping in their rooms. She barely knew this guy. At his insistence, she finally relented and let him come inside while she called him a cab. Turning her back to Cal as she picked up the phone, like a bolt of lightning, she crashed to the floor. Unbeknownst to her, Cal had thrown a 43-inch thong, which is basically a leather strap, kind of looks like a dog leash, not an underwear thong, around her neck. Or at least he had tried to. Instead, his lasso had caught her bottom lip. As he jerked back, he didn't choke her as intended. Instead, it injured her face as he tightened it. And the pulling he had done had thrown her six feet across the room onto her stomach. Once she was down, he was able to make adjustments to the strap, and it was now around her neck. In a second, she felt Cal kneel on top of her. She was able to roll onto her side and looked at him. He was, quote, wild-eyed and looking right back at her. He tried holding her, but she screamed. Scared, he ran off. Thankfully, the officer was there, and he was caught. In his backpack, police found a rape kit, which included a two-inch roll of duct tape and a large knife. He was swiftly charged with attempted murder, attempted first-degree rape, attempted first-degree assault, and second-degree assault. At the trial for the attack, Cal took the stand. He claimed that while at the house with the woman, he had simply been giving her a back rub to help alleviate the pain of a cold she had. Sound familiar? I mean, this guy really has an M.O. As he did, the thong, which he claimed to be using as a sweatband, had simply slipped, and when it landed on her, she panicked when it went around her neck. He had tried to get the strap off of her, but as he did, they both fell down. She simply mistook this accident as him throwing her and trying to kill her. He also had perfectly good reasons for the items in his backpack, saying that he used his survival knife and the tape to fix his motorcycle and helmet, both of which he had not been actively using. He even had the nerve to say, quote, I don't think I would hurt anybody for any reason, not promising to say, I don't think. A 14-year-old boy who Cal considered a kid brother reported that Cal had once told him the best way to get a girl is to tie her up and then get her. A doctor who examined Cal said that he showed signs of a personality disorder that was severe enough he predicted future criminal behavior. It also showed Cal had a lot of sexual conflicts and that he had a hatred of women and will continue to prey on them 
unless he was put away for a very long time. The defense was not fond of that diagnosis. The defense's doctor negated all of those points, and they even argued that Cal was simply immature and self-centered. The defense asked for a sentence of one year in jail with credit for the almost seven months he had already served. He could stay on probation, of course. That way, he could finish school. Cal asked for a lenient sentence and even apologized to the victim. He promised he wanted to get help and become a useful member of society. So how is it a man can attack a woman in 77, attempt to murder another in 84, and be out to kill in 91? For the attack in Corvallis, Cal Brown was sentenced to 15 years with a request from the judge that he served no less than seven and a half years before even being considered for parole. Cal went to prison in 1984. Those who knew how dangerous he could be hoped that he would be there until 1999. Instead, he was paroled on March 25, 1991, less than two months before the murder of Holly and attempted murder of Susan. He had been granted parole, not just eight years before he finished his sentence, but six months before the minimum as requested by the judge, because he had received a positive psychiatric evaluation. His PO specialized in working with sex offenders. The parole board felt everything was in place to give Cal Brown yet another chance. The DA who had tried the case in 84 wrote a letter to the board begging them to reconsider. The letter read in part that not only was Cal one of the most dangerous criminals he had ever prosecuted, but that, quote, unless he has undergone a remarkable transformation in prison, he will remain a potential mutilator and killer of women. When Cal was released, he went back to school at OSU, but after eight weeks of checking in with his PO, Cal went quiet. On May 23rd, while Cal was kidnapping Holly, his PO was filing the paperwork to get a warrant for his arrest for failure to check in. Back in Seattle, Holly's autopsy showed just how violent her death had been. In fact, the cause couldn't be narrowed down to a single element. It was the combination of blood loss from the cuts to her neck and how tightly knotted the purse strap was. This not only caused strangulation, but it was so tight and her wounds were so deep they had to take the strap out of her neck. Because of the petechia in her eyes, it was believed she had been strangled first. The hours of torture she endured left her body riddled with injuries and wounds. Holly's face had serious bruising. She had burn marks on her inner thighs and the areas around and inside her vagina were bruised, as was her anus. The aftershave bottle Cal had used to rape Holly was not only consistent with the injuries, but authorities found the bottle in his hotel room in Palm Springs. He had taken it with him and was very possibly still using it to freshen up. Holly had what looked like whip marks from either the cord or belt on her inner thighs and nipples. Her ankles were bruised from the handcuffs he had tightened around them. Besides the stabbings to her chest, there were slice wounds. When compared to the Leatherman tool Cal was in possession of, the markings matched. There's no telling why Cal pled guilty to the attempted murder of Susan, but went to trial for Holly. But he did. In June of 1991, he was charged with aggravated murder in the first degree. It was no surprise that on December 10, 1993, the jury, after hearing the confession and horrific details of Holly's murder, found Cal Brown guilty of premeditated murder in the first degree as he only killed her to cover up his array of additional crimes. So that was the aggravated part. The jury also found aggravating circumstances as he had committed robbery in the first or second degree, rape in the first degree, and kidnapping in the first degree. Finding Cal guilty of such heinous crimes, the jury then had a difficult decision to make. 
give the monster the leniency he requested, or agree on the death penalty. It probably didn't help his chances that he had already been sentenced to life in California. When making the decision, the jury was to consider if the state had proven beyond a reasonable doubt that Cal was undeserving of anything less than the death penalty. Cal was allowed to make arguments as to why he shouldn't be sentenced to death. He included the lack of attachment he had with his mother when he was a baby. It was testified that his birth had been traumatic and his negative behaviors began as an infant. His mother would eventually marry five times. At least one of those husbands had been physically and psychologically abusive towards her and Cal. Multiple Brown family members took the stand, and there was not a single one who said they cared about or wanted to be around Cal. As a child, his cousins stayed away. The jarring fantasies he would share aloud made everyone uneasy. His aunt Suzette said, quote, There was a tension around Cal. The older he got, the more bizarre his fantasies got. It was a difficult situation. I think each one of us adults rejected him. I saw Cal as someone who could not connect with any of us. His family members talked about the toy gun he always had around him, which he used as a sort of security blanket. They shared how they had never seen Cal's mother hold him. She left it up to the others to comfort him. All through school, Cal was seeing school counselors and psychologists. One gave the recommendation that he be taken away from his mom's house and go live with another family member. But by then, his behavior had been so off-putting, no one was willing to do so. He was smart, but chaotic. He was violent and needy. No one was surprised to learn of what he had done to Holly or Susan. Each time a family member took the stand, Cal's lawyer asked them the same question. Could they think of a single person who actually enjoyed the company of Cal or sought him out? They all answered the same. No. A psychologist, Dr. Roland Mario, took the stand to discuss the diagnosis he had made while working with Cal. He felt Cal was suffering from manic syndrome, sexual sadism, ADHD, and an antisocial personality disorder. The state's doctor said he did not find organic brain damage in Cal, which had been mentioned as a possible part of his birth trauma. After hearing the testimony, the jury came back with a decision. Cal would be sentenced to death. They understood he may have had mental health issues and a troubled childhood, but plenty of people have both of those things and more, and they don't go out kidnapping, torturing, raping, or murdering people. Cal and his team, of course, filed appeals against the sentence. They argued his mental issues should have excluded him. They argued the punishment didn't fit the crime. He argued against the aggravating circumstances. Yeah, right. Nice try. The court denied all of it. 2007 saw the argument regarding the dismissal of a juror. Okay, the long and the short of it is that after sentencing, Cal filed a petition of a writ of habeas corpus, saying the trial judge dismissed a juror before finding out how that juror felt about capital punishment. The district court denied the petition, so Cal appealed. I think it was even more than one juror. I think three were dismissed and two had opinions on capital punishment. Yeah, and that's very possible that there were others. Just in the appeal, I saw it just mentioned the one in this circumstance, but I don't doubt that there were more. So with all of that, the Ninth Circuit Court reversed the ruling and agreed with Cal, and they said the dismissal infringed on a Supreme Court precedent. Not questioning that juror had apparently swayed the jury and therefore nulled his sentence. This case eventually made it to the Supreme Court, 
They overruled the Washington court, saying that the judge has every right to remove a juror if they feel the opinion toward the death penalty would affect the ability to make a decision come deliberations and sentencing. Justices RBG, Stevens, Breyer, and Soyder dissented the outcome, saying they had concerns that this would limit juries and could inadvertently cause more death penalty sentences. So what I basically understand of that, and Emily, having covered this, maybe you can help me, I understand very little, but it sounds like the judge can learn of a potential jury member who has expressed Mm -hmm. opinions of the death penalty and knowing that they can just have them removed without the kind of traditional voidier process. And so this would be due to the fact that if they went to the sentencing portion of the trial and death penalty was on the table, that juror wouldn't be willing to agree with it. So it would have been an issue from the start. Yeah. I mean, if you compare it to any other opinion for a jury, you don't want somebody who's falling to the the far right, the polar ends. Right. Right. You need them to kind of not have an, a strong opinion on anything mm-hmm. and go into it with an open mind. And yeah. in two, it was two of them had suggested that they were against it. But one of them they quoted as calling it barbaric. Mm. So they maybe that was they, they officially yeah. would have never uh, voted for it, you know, and with with you needing, um, I think. Washington might have been a unanimous vote state. Yeah. Or at least for death penalty. Right. Yeah. So that would have been again. The DA didn't wouldn't want once that. again. Put me on a jury. I'll be screaming that from the start. And then I'll get kicked out. I'm never going to be on a jury, man. Well, with all that, his death sentence stood in 2009, just eight hours before Cal was to be executed. A ruling came from the Washington Supreme Court granting him a stay. Though they had denied his request for clemency, they didn't deny his argument about lethal injections and if they are considered cruel and unusual. Just weeks ago, Governor Jay Inslee of Washington, who has done some great things like ban the sale of assault rifles and some not so great things like not opening an investigation regarding Aaron Christensen, he recently signed a new bill into law. Senate Bill 5087 not only eliminated state-sanctioned killing, but removed state sterilization as a punishment, which I didn't realize was still on the docket until literally weeks ago. The governor actually placed a moratorium against the death penalty almost a decade ago, and the Supreme Court of Washington invalidated the death penalty statute in 2018. Through research, it was learned that where the crime took place and the race of the accused perpetrator were more detrimental to a decision than the proof. Besides the studies that have shown that the death penalty is not a successful deterrent against crimes and that there are moral issues like wrongful convictions that lead to wrongful deaths and, of course, the elements of racism. Being that Washington is Washington, it wasn't like they were handing out death sentences left and right. In fact, since 1976, only five inmates have been put to death. All of them were white. That doesn't mean all of the inmates on death row were white, though. In fact, a University of Washington report found that Washington state juries were more than four times likely to impose a death sentence if the defendant was black. So I pulled up my old script to look at the execution breakdown, and it's, I mean, it's very heavily white. It's 66 Caucasians seven blacks, two Asians, two Hispanics, and one Alaskan indigenous person. Interesting. Very heavily on the Caucasian side. Well, yeah. By default, you know, Washington. Yeah. And that's through state history? That's total? Yeah, I pulled... What is that, 70, 80 people? Yeah, I pulled all of them. Thank you for sharing, Emily. Of course. 
Nearly 20 grueling years went by with Holly and Susan's families and friends awaiting the disposal of the monster who had brought them so much pain. From ClarkProsecutor.org, here's a little synopsis of the timeline so you can understand why it took so long to see his sentence through. January 2009, the U.S. Supreme Court denies his petition. A mandate is issued and execution is scheduled for March 13th. In March of 2009, Washington Supreme Court denies Cal's original action against officers. Then, a Thurston County Superior judge denies Cal's motion for a stay of execution. March 12th, the day before he was set to be executed, the Clemency and Pardons Board votes 2-2 to to stay the execution. March 12th, at 4 p.m., the state Supreme Court rules 5-4 to to grant the stay. July 10th, 2009. Thurston County Superior Court rules Washington's lethal injection is constitutional, both on the federal and state levels. July 14th, Washington Supreme Court denies a motion to vacate the stay. July 29th, Washington State Supreme Court dismisses the challenges brought by Cal against lethal injection. His execution is now scheduled for September 10th. August 18th, Cal files a motion for the stay, again related to the lethal injection procedure saying that getting the medication required violated the Controlled Substances Act, which is clever. It's very clever. But it didn't work. August 19th, another motion for a stay. On the 31st, that motion was denied. September 2nd, he filed an emergency motion for a stay. Now he was saying the team that was going to euthanize him was unqualified, and on top of that, he wanted a hearing and time for discovery to research their qualifications. He also added that his mental health issues were downplayed during sentencing and they should be reconsidered. The following day, he filed a motion with the county to say he was too incompetent to be executed. On the 4th, those motions were denied. September 7th, 8th, and 9th were filled with filings, requests for stays, requests for reconsiderations, asking the governor to step in. On the 9th, all remaining motions, requests, and grovels were denied. On September 10th, 2010, Cal Coburn Brown was put to death by lethal injection. He was 52 years old. He was the last inmate to be executed by the state of Washington. Unlike the unimaginable pain and torture he put to his victims, especially Holly and Susan, he was given a single medicine, took three deep breaths, and was gone. His last meal was pizza, apple pie, root beer, coffee, and milk. His final words were, as transcribed by witnesses, first to the family of Holly Washa. I have to say to you that I understand your feelings and your enmity and hatred towards me. I hold no enmity towards you. I hope that the actions taken tonight will give you closure, the closure that you seek. I forgive you for any hatred that you have toward me. I have no complaints about my treatment by the staff at the prison for the last 17 years I've spent here. They are very professional. As far as the state of Washington and King County, I protest based on disparity of sentencing. The Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway, and Robert Yates raped and tortured and killed many women, and they were spared the death penalty. I raped and killed one person. I don't see the true justice in that. Hopefully sometime in the future this gets straightened out. Thank you, God bless you, and God bless my family. This might be controversial, but I agree with his final three-minute statement. I well, okay, first let's state the obvious of how disgusting it is to say I only that's just one person. Oh, uh, absolutely, but I in the, in the way the law treated it. But yes, comparing it, the cases, it is it isn't fair that somebody would get a death penalty sentence compared to 48 versions of that and getting right. a life sentence. So I right. I see his argument. 
what's her name from the Manson family who was just released? I believe she was given a life sentence and she's out. And how often do we see that? Well, in his own case, he was given a life sentence and was released. So, yeah, when Gary Ridgway is given a life sentence, that's a little. uh, Well, life sentence varies place to place. But yeah, I agree. And I I mean, Gary Ridgway is not going anywhere. Exactly. They're not concurrent. But but I I see his argument is Mm -hmm. what I mean. Yeah. Um, And it's bold to use your last three minutes on earth to really drive that home. But he was saying it from the beginning. So I don't agree. For those of you who are going to criticize me, I don't agree with. Right. You know, he should have got away with it. If we were saying that, if we're sitting here going, isn't that bizarre that this man, while it's I mean, we all have our feelings on the death penalty. I'm glad that he got a an appropriate sentence for what he did. Mm-hmm. But isn't it interesting that he got that and the Green River Killer didn't? Well, and then so he, if we're talking about it, that's different. But he was the last person to be put to death in Washington. And yeah. he was one of the reasons they made those changes. So yeah. I, I do. I don't know. It, it's just interesting that uh, I didn't necessarily disagree with his arguments in the end. I think it also shows. And this was how I read it just how much he loves living in the victimhood. Oh, absolutely. You are about to die and you're not, you're barely saying you're sorry. You're saying you're not mad at the family. Yeah, he avoided saying I'm sorry is in many, many It's ways. okay, family. I I, I get it. Like, I, I forgive I you forgive for you. hating me and my Oof. what I did to your family. I know he's a so bunch of bullshit, sick. but there was some logic to that yes. final argument yes. is all I'm trying to say. Yeah, oh, to- oh, I don't disagree with that at all. I I I agree with that. That I think that just shows how wonky the justice system is, and how Absolutely. have things. I mean, disparity is the correct yes. term to use. Yes. So I, I, yeah, there's worse out there though. Like in this, uh, people yeah. up against worse consequences for not doing something. Mm-hmm. It's like there's a reason we mm-hmm. don't want the death penalty. But yeah, or you know, we don't need to rehash that. Go to the other episode if you want to hear that. <laughs> or this guy over here sold a pound of weed and he's spending 25 years you know and then uh the guy in josh's case the hat man he gets 26 years and i'm sure he'll be out early and then we have you know entire podcasts dedicated to innocent people on death row who just shared the same skin color as the person that actually committed the murder so i mean there is a reason states are turning down the death penalty and i wonder too if part of him getting it and say not gary ridgeway I wonder if any part of that is we already served you time. And, oh, definitely. And you should still be behind bars or you should have served that more time. That is a time. very valid point. Because so the, we're going to make sure you don't get out again. The law, like specifically in Oregon, the law used to be if you were in prison for murder and you commit another murder, it's an automatic yeah. death penalty case like that. That's how it used to work. Or yeah. Actually, I think that might be how it works still because it's not officially abolished here. Right. Um, but I imagine Washington was very s- similar. So that's actually a really good point to bring up. Yeah. So it's another horrible one. It's just as frustrating as the last one where this guy did this thing and at the very least should have been there longer, even if he I mean, he was out for five minutes and was already back to harming people. So he and it's also mind boggling for the parole board, you're part of this system. And why do we have to keep hearing about prosecutors and judges who are saying, dear God, I've worked a million cases and this is the nastiest creature I've ever come across. Please don't let him out early. And they're like, mm, 
I don't think this judge knows what he's talking about. And I mean, I like to write it off as, okay, there are s- situations where they may not have access to all of the files, but why? But then why, why are they, they giving parole? I know. <laughs> I know. That's like... But there are also legal loopholes where the law is just not covering its yeah. ass. Yeah. And people are getting away with stuff. I mean, yeah. it's frustrating all around. Nothing can be perfect. I get that. It, we can't right. get it right for everyone. But at some point, but we got to start be making some corrections. Yeah, it has to be better. At the very least, these parole people should be watching Dateline episodes and stuff. That would at least give them an idea. Sorry for the listeners who think that just got a little too political. We know you're out there. That wasn't political. (laughs) They'll they'll think it is. Well, oh, that's political. Bitch. (laughs) Rhetorical. Right, we ready? My chair is damp. <laughs> I thought I smelt some butt. <laughs> Looking for her roommate's checkbooks. Checkbooks, right? Mm-hmm. Checks mix. <laughs> Thank you. Her name was... Wait. Well, someday when we're driving to Boise, we'll make a little stop in Clarkston and U- and Lewiston. Her. Gurgle. That was me. Oh, it's the... It's the... <laughs> Little snackies I had. Oh, chips. Should we call those like throat purrs? <laughs> so yeah. they sound that sexy. sexy. That's what it sounds like when you oh. only have a partial stomach. <laughs> oh, sexy. Uh, where they got rooms at the Ramada Inn. Well, actually, they had booked separate rooms, but only got one. Are you on my script right now? No. Oh. <laughs> I just oh, are you saying you remember Ramada from your story? Yeah. Holy shit. I barely remember names. That's amazing. Well, they had planned on getting rooms. Upon- oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. You were literally going <laughs> yeah. to say it. I was like, wait, what? what's happening? What could be better than getting oral sex in a back rub? Sax. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> frappuccino, frappuccino. Instead, it injured his... <laughs> and the tape to fix his motorcycle and helmet. Helmet. He used his survival tape. Nope. Psychologist Dr. Ronald. Yeah. No. McDonald. <sighs> I also see him. <laughs> I see him right now floating in the air. Hamburglar. Ah! Grimace. After hearing. <coughs> I'm so sorry. Get fucked! <laughs> Go ahead. Had opinions on corporal punishment. Capital. Corporal. A little more extreme. Cap. Let me you say want it again. some spankings, him? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Denied his petition for writ of, oh, what? Oh, it, no one said, no anything. One said <laughs> anything. I swear I heard a like ah, you know it's. It, well, that's... then we have innocent people on death row. For... Oh, that was a whistle. That was <laughs> really was. went through my chimney cricket. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. 
For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore Murder in the Rain. And suck my balls. <laughs>